Good morning. This morning, uh, I'm reading from the book of Joel, um, second chapter, and this text is from the New Revised Standard Version, and it's a, a few different um, verses, so you, you might not be able to follow me. So I'll try and read it extra well. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them ages to come. Truly the day of the Lord is great, terrible indeed. Who can endure it? Yet even now, the Lord says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even infants at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. In response to his people, the Lord said, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a mockery among the nations. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other. The word of the Lord.
Good morning. This morning we are wrapping up our late summer sermon series on justice in the minor prophets with the book of Joel. I find it especially fitting that we're doing this on a communion Sunday where we celebrate both one of the greatest injustices and the most amazing justice combined into one we have ever seen. Over the past few weeks, we have been learning what justice means in a biblical sense, something that is much larger and more expansive and more holistic than perhaps our perceived notions had been. And our passage this morning will once again draw us deeper into God's vision for his kingdom's justice. The book of Joel is both highly poetic and highly apocalyptic in nature. It is meant to reveal previously hidden truths to those who would have the ears to listen and the eyes to see. And like most of the minor prophets, Joel has something to say about the way that people are living their lives and the consequences that flow from those choices. But he does so by highlighting a unique way, a unique instance that is often overlooked in biblical justice. Our passage this morning started with a stark warning. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, is near, a day of darkness and gloom. Truly the day of the Lord is great, terrible indeed. Who can endure it? What we skip as we move through different verses in particular is what comes right after that warning. In the next verse, the prophet goes on to say, fire devours in front of them and behind them a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness wilderness, and nothing escapes them. And it was the mention of Eden that got me thinking. Thinking about the interaction between humans and the earth and God. And what I began to notice is that throughout all three chapters in the book of Joel, the prophet is making some clear connections. Connections between the sin and the failures of humanity and the devastation of creation, the barren fields, the rotting fruit, the darkness of the sun and the moon. He also is making another set of connections, a set between the grace of God and the repentance of the people and the restoration and flourishing of the land on which they live. And as I read these warnings, I began to think about another passage that came many, many, many generations later. In the book of Colossians, there is a famous portion that we often call the Christ hymn. And in it, we hear this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth are created Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first in everything For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him 
God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, as it turns out, we are far more connected to creation than we ever acknowledge. Because it is in Christ that all things, not just human beings, are being held and reconciled. Scripture declares that even the rocks and the plants will cry out in the praise of God. We're told he feeds the animals of the field and the birds of the air. He even clothes the lilies in the fields. Readers familiar with Genesis 1 will be reminded of the first account of creation at the very beginning of Scripture, where we are reminded that the humans are only part of the creation of God. That what began with the creation of the sun and the moon, as we look at the pictures we now have out in our hallway, what began with the creation of the very seas and the skies and the birds and the animals and then finalizes in humans. Humanity has always been tied intimately to the land, to the animals, to the world that God has created. In fact, it is only when all of these pieces come together into one that God declares that it is good. We need the world as much as it needs us. So many of us spend all of our time now on asphalt, surrounded by concrete buildings, sitting inside of offices or schoolrooms or cars or metal, that we forget. We forget just how important the world is to our well-being. But I found that every time I take a road trip and I begin to drive back to the Northwest, something strange happens. Every time I cross the border between Northern California and Oregon, I begin to cry a little because, you see, there's a very distinct smell that the Pacific Northwest has. It's kind of pine tree, damp earth, and moss. And that might not sound very attractive for you, but for me, that smells like home. And every time I smell it, memories begin to form. They flood me. They ground me. They speak to my soul. And it hits me every time that a reminder that the earth is not just an object. It's not just a thing to be used. It is an integral part of God's creation. But even more so, it is an integral part of what makes me human, what makes me me. In Joel, the health of the earth is a direct reflection of the health of our relationship with God. When the people reject and turn from God, the very earth suffers. As it and we experience both separation from the creator and the sustainer and arise in our own selfishness and inconsideration. You see, in reality, it was supposed to be a bit of a quid pro quo, that just as the earth cares for us, it feeds us, it sustains us, we are supposed to care for it. We are stewards of the world. And when we mistreat it, when we abuse that responsibility, we are perpetuating an injustice against God who entrusted it into our care. And perhaps part of the problem is that we have spent too much time in Genesis 1 and not enough time in Genesis 2. 
Because for far too long, we have declared our position in the world as one of dominion over the earth. We have recited the command to subdue it and to fill it, to treat it as nothing more than a resource for us to use and discard as we see fit. But Genesis 2 has a different story. You see, God tells Adam to shamar the earth. It's a Hebrew word for keep or watch or preserve, to be in trust of. They're words that speak of guardianship, not ownership. And they indicate a gentleness, a protectiveness, a love that is similar to what you would experience with a child in your care. Just because you have dominion over your child doesn't mean that they are yours to use to make yourself happy, that you should destroy them or strip everything from them possible. No, we know that those are bad parents. Good parents raise their children to flourish. They care for them in a way that sees to their best health and growth. The same kind of care is entrusted to us in care of creation. So the book of Joel calls us to remember that we are not above creation, but we are part of it. And just as we are called to worship God, we are called to do so in concert with all that God has created. And when species go extinct and are wiped out, when they disappear from the planet, all I can think is that a voice from the choir of God has gone silent. In chapter 1 of the book of Joel, the prophet says that the fields are devastated and the grounds mourn. He writes, even the wild animals cry out to you. And there's a bit of a warning and a remembrance that when we mistreat the world, when it suffers because of our arrogance or our sin, it cries out to God for justice. When I began work on preparing for this sermon, I was surprised in an unexpected way. I discovered that in particular, portions of this chapter, this chapter 2, were used in two very different parts of what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. For those of you who don't know, the RCL is basically a three-year cycle that goes through most of the Bible. The idea being that if you go through three years on this, you will have read basically, though not all, of Scripture. And it is used by a vast majority of mainline Protestant churches in the U.S. and in Canada. You can go to plenty of churches on any given Sunday and they will be preaching on the same text. But usually with the RCL, it means that there's some kind of continuity. So if I was preaching on John 1, the first half might be this week and the second half would be next week. But that's not what happens with Joel 2. It's, it's different. It's irregular. Because the first half of the text is preached every single year on Ash Wednesday. And the second half of the text is also preached every single year on Thanksgiving. And it seems to me when I was looking at this that this was actually the perfect treatment of this chapter. It's the very spirit of Joel 2 because it speaks both to the call to repentance and the gratitude for God's gifts. 
We know on Ash Wednesday that all of the people of God gather to recognize our own fragility, our own sin. We recognize that it is literally from the earth that we come and the earth that we return to, that from the moment of our creation, our destiny is intertwined with the destiny of this world. And when God speaks through Joel to comfort his people, when he speaks out his words in the face of this terrible threat of the coming day of the Lord, he speaks first to the world. Do not fear, O soil, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain. You see, as we recognize our own sin, just like the people that Joel is addressing, we too can hear the promise of God. When he says, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your hearts and not your clothes. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Justice in the Bible always begins with repentance. Likewise, as we know on Thanksgiving, when we gather with friends and with family, when we celebrate what the Lord has done for us, what our community has done for us, what the earth has provided for us to eat, we experience a grace of God that echoes the words again of Joel when he reminds us that God is in fact gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishing when we repent and show gratitude to God, what we hear is a promise to restore us and the earth. The book of Joel is again a reminder that God's justice is not just for humans, but it extends for all of creation. And it tells us that what we do, the choices that we make, that you and I make every day, impact far more than we could ever begin to guess. It impacts the health of the entirety of creation. The point of repentance in Joel, they say, is to try to get God to change his mind, to relent from the day that he might leave an offering and restore humanity and creation. What a powerful gift that is to think that we might be able to participate in restoring the world. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that this text is a bit on the apocalyptic side. It's a word that we're not used to hearing very often, but if we do, we tend to connect it more to the book of Revelation. And it's true, because at the end of Revelation, we get the we are able, in fact, to see, to have a little bit more of a vision of what it looks like when God's justice unfolds and will unfold in its fullness in our world. See, we are able to see that the final fulfillment of God's justice is the restoration, the recreation of earth in heaven. Not just you and I, but of all things restored and flourishing and renewed. 
Wendell Berry, who's an incredible theologian and agriculturist and farmer, once wrote this. The ecological teaching of the Bible is simply inescapable. God made the world because he wanted it made. He thinks the world is good and he loves it. It is his world. He has never relinquished title to it. And he has never revoked the conditions bearing on his gift to us the use of it that oblige us to take excellent care of it. And I think these words help us to understand. They help us to see how God's justice is bigger and far vaster than our own. How it can challenge our imaginations and seem inconceivable and convoluted at times. Because the truth is that more often than not, we operate as though the earth belongs to us. We think that it should play by our rules. But the reality is the earth has always and will always belong to God. And it is God's rules that matter. And that means that how we treat one another matters. As we have heard throughout the last five weeks, how we treat the poor and the orphan and the stranger and the widow and the foreigner matters. How we treat the earth, how we treat that which was entrusted to us matters. God's justice, biblical justice, is not our justice. It is so much more begins at the very moment of Genesis and it continues to the very close of Revelation and it continues to today. It is so much bigger and longer and broader and consuming than we could ever begin to understand because it is intertwined with the mercy and the graciousness and the steadfast love of God. You see, that's what I find so incredible about this table. Every time we come to it, because we're talking about some bread and some wine, some grain that grew in a field, some grapes that grew on a vine, and yet they have come to be something so much more. But even in a moment of transcendence, even in a moment when we stand before God, when we are lifted by the Spirit to be with Him, we are still tied to the earth by these fundamental elements. And it is at this table that we are renewed and restored. That we finally can understand what it means to be in Him. To know that we are created in Him and restored in Him. It is a place where our repentance brings us to be washed clean. Where there are no boundaries and no barriers, just an offer. If you repent, I will be with you in your midst. This is a table that speaks to the very heart of who God is and who we are. And it is meant for every single one of us.